the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, giant jellyfish of doom meet the harpoon of mathematical delight, and a new star is born. Ripe genuflection and windy peroration. Plus, we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Rango's Under a Graveyard Sky. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain editor Tony Daniel. This time we have part one of a two-part discussion with Charles E. Gannon on his new novel, Raising Cain. This is book three in Chuck's Compton Crook Award-winning, Hugo-nominated, Cain Reorden science fiction series, and it's the sequel to Trial by Fire and Fire with Fire. We also continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky. Now the news. There's new free fiction at the Bain.com website. This month we have Embers of the Past by Mike Kupari. This is a big one. It's a full novella set in the world of Mike's space opera adventure novel, which is going to debut next month, Her Brother's Keeper. In this novella, we meet the captain and main character of the book and get a real taste of Mike's galactic political setup. It's a really good and meaty novella. Also this month, we have Tomorrow's Math by Dr. Robert Dawson. Robert is a mathematics professor at St. Mary's University in Nova Scotia. He was also a runner-up for the Jim Bain Memorial Short Story Award. And when I met him at the International Space Development Conference this year, which is where we give the award, I asked him if he would consider writing an article for the layman on what cool future developments might be in store for math or if there could be developments in math. He said there could be, and especially what might be the implications of mathematical advance for humankind's future. Well, I think he delivered a great piece on this, and we're pleased to post it this month at Bain.com for your reading enjoyment. Embers of the Past and Tomorrow's Math are now available at Bain.com and will be available in free ebook form in the free short story and free nonfiction anthologies for 2015, which you can find at BainEbooks.com. This is part one of our two-part interview with Charles E. Gannon on his new entry in the Kane Riordan science fiction series, Raising Kane. Part two and the conclusion of this interview will be available next time on the podcast. want to welcome Charles E. Gannon to the podcast. Hello, Chuck. Hello. How are you doing, Tony? Chuck Gannon is the author of Compton Crook Award-winning, nationally best-selling, Nebula-nominated Fire with Fire, Trial by Fire, and now Raising Cain, which is the third book in the Cain Reardon series. He's the author with Eric Flint of 1636 The Papal Stakes and 1636 Commander Cantrell in the West Indies in the Ring of Fire series. And with Steve White, Chuck is the co-author of Starfire series entries Extremis and Imperative. He's also the author of multiple short stories, 
uh, a member of Sigma, the SF think tank, which has advised various intelligence and defense agencies since the start of the millennium. I guess that would be our current millennium, I'm hoping. Uh, Raising Cain is now at booksellers everywhere. That's what we want to talk about today. So uh, Chuck Cain Reardon has come a long way since he was awakened from cryogenic sleep in Fire with Fire. Can you give us a brief history of Kane's story the past couple of years in, in his story time? Why did they wake him up? Uh, who is he? What's he been doing the past two years? We're going to try to keep this as concise as possible. Uh, as folks probably know and have pointed out, the, the story is, um, is while I wouldn't say it's Baroque, it's has um, a, a lot of twists and turns to it. So this is a really, really streamlined version. But uh, Kane Riordan, uh, his background is as a defense analyst and, a, and a, an independent, both as an analyst and a sort of writer for what would be the equivalent of a, of a Jane's or a Nightwatch. And he, uh, he's in the, the wrong place at the right time. In 2105, uh, he is mistaken as a person of interest is uh, taken out of taken out of the loop, put into cold sleep. They don't know what to do with it. They can't they can't just bring him back because that's going to point arrows at this at the at the entire operation they were trying to keep secret. So they bring him back uh, 13 years later in 28 in 2118. Uh, in the time he's been asleep, we've gone from being a non-interstellar culture to an interstellar culture, and we've just seen the first possibilities of uh, the evidence of intelligence life, uh, intelligent life on Delta Provanus III in the, in the shape of maybe ruins. Uh, the folks who've awakened him uh, are not really sure, and they can't afford to send out, out somebody who would already be on a watch list. Of course, Kane has been gone for 13 years, so missing, presumed, dead on the moon. And uh, out he goes, and... Um, Basically, things as they say go downhill from there. Uh, for the uh, not to give away, this is going to be a, a tricky interview simply because there are so many spoiler components. But to to uh, to really synopsize it, um, being uh, being a person who who's a, a polymath, a bit of a, a Renaissance person, ability to adapt to new situations. He sort of is brought in as what they consider the, the folks who awakened him a cultural agent, winds up going on a delegation to um, to actually meet the first uh, contacted uh, exosapiens. And it turns out that we are, I think this is a tactful way to say it, we are essentially pawns in a much bigger game. Uh, we, we like to think it's all about us, but it really isn't very much about us at all. It is humanity, right. We being humanity, and by uh, if uh, let's say if the end of the book is first contact, you know doesn't go so well, uh, the second book begins with something reminiscent of Pearl Harbor, so we know it really hasn't gone well, and uh, you know obviously there's a third book, so we're not extinct. <laughs> I'll I'll, uh, I'll let people. I'll well, let people. I think anybody that's that that's going to be buying Raising Cain is is likely. Um has some idea of the of where we are up till now in the story. Um, I don't know if we want to say too much about it, but we can we can uh, maybe talk a little bit about the uh, the, the galacto political situation. Um, tell us about that. The political structure out there um, it's complicated. There are several alien species that we've met. There's uh, now tell me if I tell me how to say these things. Less Rithy. Kator, Eret Kerr, um, humanity's just had a war with them in uh, in 
trial by fire and the Dornani, who are a special class. Can you sort of run down who the aliens are? Because they're really cool. They're very distinct. You've done a wonderful job of creating them. Well, I, I thank you very much. I I guess you would say that when I when I look at when I when I look at uh, exosapient species, what I do is I I come up with a, what I would call the creation tale for each one of them. And to give you a, a contrast to that, for anybody who's seen the movie Two Thousand One: A Space Odyssey, we have that the early part of the movie where we see how it's called the Dawn of Man. Uh, sorry, don't mean to be sexist, but that's what it says on the screen. Um, and we get the idea that, that in some ways, the discovery of the bone as tool and weapon, uh, particularly weapon, is sort of that, it is that tip over, tip over moment in the evolution of intelligence for us. What I do for each one of these, uh, exosapien or alien species is to say, what is their moment? And, and that, that, how the moments are different, for me, largely is a clue to how they evolve differently. Um, so the different species you have, the Slothrithi, um, are, are, until the third book, are arguably amongst the most enigmatic uh, of all of them. They have not really allowed themselves to be seen, uh, so we believe. Um, we have the Kator, who are a special case, uh, <laughs> that I, I really can't talk that much about without a lot of spoilers, um, save to say that they are not what they first seem. Um, they present themselves off as uh, cold, extreme cold environment creatures, and that's not exactly their origins. Uh, we have the Aratkur. They, are, uh, they resemble on the outside, I guess you could say, um, you, you know, a sort of a cross between horseshoe crabs and and uh, a cockroach, except for they are mammals. They are um, they are innately um, subterranean, and their evolution story really is as trappers. They are miners and trappers, and that has a lot to do with both the senses and the way they develop physically, and also their social evolution. Uh, the the Hukruh, one of the other species uh, who are uh, who have who actually figure very importantly in the fourth book, um, and we'll get a, a much better sense of them there. Are a kind of chaser species. Uh, you might say they one of their distinguishing features is that they're more aggressive than humanity. Being more aggressive than humanity, they have a hard time maintaining uh, the sort of forward-moving culture. They have a tendency to bash themselves back, if you will, to earlier technological and social states simply because uh, they don't they don't ride the, the the ragged edge of the balance of terror, I guess you could say, as well as Homo sapiens does. And the Dornani are sort of in a special class. And the reason, arguably, they're in a special class is because they are the only one of these groups, of the uh, of these various exosapien groups, who have a history that connects to an earlier historical epoch in this particular area, this stellar cluster. Uh, they remember, or they have fragmentary memories of an earlier time when other when there were at least one or two other species that were predominant who have interestingly and at this point in the series mysteriously been removed from the game board uh, how that happened why that happened is all part of what the uh, the series is moving towards um, and I think it would be you know safe to say that there are a lot of um, let's put it like this one of my jobs is to make sure that I'm not 
I'm, I'm not tangling readers up with more moving wheels and gears than they need to be tangled up with at any given moment. But I think it's also safe to say that for those folks who are familiar with it, you ain't seen nothing yet. Uh, <laughs> so there are a lot more whirring gears and wheels back there. Yeah. The, you could sort of say that Raising Cain is the Slathrithi book, right? You would, I mean, there's a lot about them we find out. Oh, absolutely. It definitely is the Slusrithi book. Uh, it is, you know, one of the things we like to talk about. It gets, it gets constantly, this book is already, you know, doing very well as a first contact book, given the way that Amazon characterizes these things. I would, I actually think it needs a different, a different title. It's a deep contact book. Um, in, in that first contact suggests that you, you know, you, you sort of overcome the initial barriers so that you can, pursue a deeper relationship at some later point. They're sort of doing it all at once. They being the humans who've been invited and the, uh, and the Slusriti who are, have invited them. Um, so, and in the course of that contact, they learn a lot about each other, uh, particularly humans about the Slusriti. The Slusriti are, um, Advanced culture, the the most advanced, the ones that can at the moment kick everyone else's ass are the Dornani, um, I think. And they certainly have the technology that would allow them to do so. Is what is? Can you sort of explain how the the protocol, the cords work, um, and um, how the balance is kept uh, politically? Because you can do things that will draw in. I mean, there's sort of chess moves that these guys can make that um, the couture show up and, and put on a display of uh, dominance and force. And that, that is a mistake um, because it can violate certain protocols. Can you sort of explain how that works? I can, I can give some really brief parameters uh, for folks who are really interested. Get the first book. You will find the Accords all in the back of it. Uh, I'm a real believer, sort of in the same way that mystery writers are. If you're going to do this well, you have to sort of lay the games of the rule out, the, the rules of the game out for the reader so the reader doesn't feel like there's a deus ex machina. So for me, in the course of developing this series, setting those rules out there, it, it, just as you're saying, what are what is the chess game they're playing? Well, in order to not feel like I'm dropping deus ex machina on people. They've got to know what the rules of the game are, and they are there the appendix of the first book, which is which are the accords. Some of the really pertinent or salient features uh, of it, I think, it to, to address the topics you brought up, is that as one of the human characters says in the first book, it's really not an alliance. It's really not even a confederation. It's essentially a sort of a multilateral non-aggression pact. Uh, the the various species uh, make make various promises not to intrude upon each other, which which is one of the things that's kind of um, uh, it, it's a it's an interesting it's an interesting aspect that uh, I it it's a how can I put this it's a thread out there it's a question that I invite readers to ask. Not many readers have asked that one yet, but the question logically would be, why? Why is there no greater uh, attempt to create a sort of, uh, a more closely knitted tapestry of different intelligent species to work together? That's not how the Accord is set up. And, and so 
far no one has questioned that. In the case of humanity, they haven't had the chance to question it because um, one of the problems with the Accord is that it's, it's, it's age and limitation are being shown. Um, for instance, what you said about what the Couture do, they very early on come in and they make it an aggression display. Now, the reason that they have come very perilously close to broke, breaking a rule, and in fact may have, uh, is that the different species are not allowed to enter each other's space. That is considered a violation of the accord without the express permission of the group whose space you're entering. Uh, there are no sort of routine visa, nothing like our visa or passport situations are set up. Everything remains very much at arm's length. Well, the Couture show up to retrieve an ambassador who actually is a bit of an assassin. Uh, a bit of an assassin. That's sort of like being a little bit pregnant, I think. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> so, so one inanity after the other here this morning. Um, but they've arrived. They then they executed that so quickly that uh, they got there way before they were supposed to, which had everybody sort of freaking out, wondering if this was not merely an aggression display, but a uh, a movement to war. Uh, so uh, so these are these are the ways that if you can say the games are played. They you know each each species has to. Uh, they have certain communication protocols. There are certain certain kinds of agree. There are certain limitations on the kinds of agreements that can be made between them. Uh, at no point can one polity make an agreement with individuals or parts of another polity that uh, that would in some ways complicate the autonomy of the species. That would make it that would make it beholden to another. Um, and it is. It is a peculiar construct, and it's intended to be a peculiar construct. So there are. It, it's actually a very simple document when you look at it. <laughs> it would have to be. I'm not going to. I'm not going to belabor these points with uh, with readers. But the way very. It's very often the games that sometimes, if you look at a game like Go, for instance, the Chinese strategy game, extremely simple rules, very very basic. They can all be done on the. You know, written in about twelve lines. But the ramifications of how they can be applied and in what combination to generate what sort of leverage is where the real fun, I guess you could say, of the political side of the game rests. Yeah. And the enforcement mechanism is basically the Dornani, right? Or is that not quite the right? Specifically the custodians. Now, the custodians, we learn over the course of the first two books, uh, are not as... When humanity first comes on, on site they learn that the Dornani are the custodians. That's at least what I think they learn. What they learn instead is that any given species may hold the role of, a, of the custodians, but the custodians are actually not a representative of the species itself. It would be, I guess, in the same way that if, you know, if we send, if the United States sends troops on a UN mission they are still from the United States, but they are no longer acting according to the to the uh, to the mandate of the U.S. They have put on the blue helmet, and that signifies that their mandate is now coming from another higher authority. The custodians, as if you will, the safeguards of obedience to the accords, are the equivalent of having put on that blue hat. And in the case of their own species, in some ways, that role distances them. 
from their own home species, the Dornani. Because one of the things that we learn in, in the course of the novel, certainly in the first two, is that the custodians are not typical Dornani. They are far more proactive than most of the Dornani are, and that's one of the ongoing mysteries about why are the Dornani so reclusive, um, so uh, I think it would be it would be almost nice to say laissez-faire about so many events, and that will be something I'm really looking forward to writing the fifth book because that's one of the things that gets that the onion, th- those layers of the onion get peeled back in the fifth book. Uh, and human society, um, it's we've just come into this this crazy uh, galactic cluster, um, and and it's not settled yet. Is the um, it, for instance, Kane's part of a group called Iris that is a secret group that is very important in the story. Um, and there are countries, there are macro corporations. Is the Terran Republic um, any kind of stability, or is that going to be in flux? <laughs> oh, spoiler alert. Well, don't, yeah. Well, just tell us about what the political state of humanity is, is what I'm really asking. Well, the political state of humanity, as you're suggesting, is highly balkanized. Um, it is rapidly, the, 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 the conflict, the, the threat from outside plus the conflict that rapidly follows, uh, uh the conflict that follows contact, um, goes a long way to creating, uh, I guess you could say bridges are thrown up between different groups because they need to be. Uh, it is a it is a it is a species survival moment, and it's remarkable how you put you put you know differences that seemed insurmountable uh, one day suddenly become highly negotiable the next if everybody's survival depends upon finding an answer to it. That doesn't mean, however, as I as I think your question is is very, very sensitively and insightfully moving towards, that doesn't mean that it's all settled. It means that you made an agreement. You you reached a modus vivendi. Modus vivendi, however, doesn't mean we're all one big happy family, you know, singing Kumbaya and passing the jug under the baobab tree. That is that is not where humanity is. Um, and in some ways, a lot of what's going on, some of the difficulties are very much reflective of inequities in our society today and our global society today in a sense get carried forward and and I don't mean this in any sort of political right left middle mars sort of sort of uh perspective but simply this when you have haves and have nots and you suddenly come into a situation where you really need everybody to show up sort of on the field in uniform ready to play at the top of their game and enthusiastically Guess what? The have-nots are probably not going to be quite as enthusiastic. They may not be quite as trained. They may not want to wear that uniform quite so much. And that creates issues at home. There is in the novel, in, in the novels coming, and this is a very slow burning fuse, but we'll see it in the next novel, the fourth novel. There are, there are terrestrial cultures that I would say have a, a hard time Playing with others in a sort of in a sort of free exchange environment, um, those cultures in this sort of scenario would be um, would really be on the horns of a dilemma. Um, you know, if you think, for instance, about some of the more protective, culturally protective cultures in the world today, how would they react in a situation where survive the 
the species survival might be dependent upon bringing down those cultural walls. And yet at the same time, being forced to do so could create, if you will, backlash later on. Um, you know, we didn't really want to do this. We really do think that more cultural protection is appropriate. You know, once the once the immediate threat is over, what's the political backwash of that? And that's one of the uh, that's one of the ongoing challenges in Earth. So to answer your question, stability to a point, but the uh, but I guess you could say I'm a real believer that if you swing the pendulum one way, it will swing back the other, usually with equal and opposite force. And Earth was com- was compelled, all of humanity was compelled to essentially try to. Uh, unify in certain ways, uh, very forcefully from out external stimuli. That doesn't mean that everything comes back to some happy middle ground. It's probably going to swing the other way. And for readers, I would say keep an eye on that. This could be some grisly fun ahead, I guess. <laughs> well, the Raising Cain starts, um, let's talk about the, the instigating factors of it. Uh, the couture arrived that we talked about their dominance display. Um, and this sort of freaks out the one slash Rithi in particular. Um, and it makes, it makes a possible alliance possible with humanity that they've been standoffish before. Um, there's a hastily put together diplomatic mission. Um, can you just talk about that? I don't know how much we want to say about the Couture, but uh, our our bad guy, um, Shrin Seth uh, Kador, Seth Kador from uh, previous books, is is about to be turned back over to his people, and that sort of is the uh, the beginning of of the the action. So, kind of set up the situation that 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 Cain is thrown into. Okay, so I'm gonna. This is where this is where it it requires an Olympic silver medal slalom performance to avoid stumbling into some huge spoilers. Uh, but to make it to make it a, to do as good a job as I can, uh, the individual known as Tlerik Srinshetkedor, who we have, uh, we didn't know his name, and we didn't know he was a Kator in the uh, in the first book. Uh, by the end of the second book, we understand more about him, his origins, and uh, his the, the way in which he represents uh, forces that are inimical to uh, to Earth's and I guess you could say humanity's interests. Yeah, and he's particularly um, tried to kill Cain a couple of times, right? Uh, well, well, yes, um, he he has he or others like him, as the case may be. Um, but he has tried to kill Cain, although Cain has not always been fully aware of it. He is the individual responsible for killing, I guess you could say, Cain's sort of um, mentor, uh, and a lot more than that in regards to other relationships we discover in the course of the books. Nolan Corcoran, who, um, you know, a lot of people who people who've been critical of the series, and there haven't been a lot, but there have been some, have sort of said, "Oh, you know, Kane is Kane just makes too many correct decisions." And I'm always kind of bemused at that because when you get right down to it, Kane largely is 
the, the one who made, who, in my opinion, makes the real leaps of insight and foresight as to what certain signs mean in terms of humanity's future, is Nolan Corcoran. Uh, in a lot of ways, you could say Cain follows the grooves that Nolan has cut with the implied directions. Cain is able to sort of figure those out. Um, one of the reasons that Nolan, a variety of reasons, is that he detects somebody who thinks a little bit like he does as well. Um, so, this, so that that slight uh, tangent is that so Chef Cater has been involved in trying to disrupt if you will, this sort of um, what I would call a key strategic thought path that was was largely constrained to this group you referred to called IRIS. That is the Institute for Reconnaissance, Intelligence, and Security. It is essentially a an umbrella black box organization that is comprised of it is it is an organization comprised of agents inside of other intelligence organizations. The reason why it had to be set up that way would be a little bit involved to go into here, but suffice it to say, if you're dealing with something that could threaten the globe, but you can't afford to make a general announcement and you can't afford to even inform all the intelligence agencies, how do you bring everybody on board? You have to do that by selective recruiting in a, on an individual level in a variety of those organizations. So it's extremely nebulous and, and diffuse in its membership and its organization. And it actually has, IRIS has very few uh, resources of its own. It has to, it has to, if you will, sort of almost steal or, or appropriate, I guess would be the tactful way of putting it, um, uh, legitimate assets that belong to other organizations. Um, and Chef Cator has, made something of a, of a minor career trying, trying to derail the strategy and, if you will, the sort of the key players who are on the scent of what's going on and maybe formulating a, a, a useful response. He's been trying to derail that and by largely getting rid of them. He has not been as successful as he likes to be, would like to be, and that has actually created problems. Um, what we will learn politically about the, the, the Couture is if you could imagine for us, if, if you were going, if you were going to try to take a, a model out of human society, you have to take, I would say, the Borgesque period of the Italian city-states with all of the nefarious infighting that, and, and house orientation and, and alliance of that period. And you then, but you invest all of its members with sort of the very worst aspects of, of what I would, um, a Nietzschean sort of personal philosophy. So, um, it's, um, it's a, it's, probably wouldn't be a place that a lot of us would like to vacation. Um, and, uh, family uh, is not as, there's a there's an important line, as a matter of fact. One of the important things about raising Cain is actually the role of love in in human society, and I do not mean romantic love. Um, I mean it in all of its forms. Um, and the Kator are deeply distrustful of it, to put it lightly. As a matter of fact, they think that it is a misperception of that that love is simply a, a, a nice word we put on uh, a matrix of relationships that are involved in in self in self-protection and self-promotion and self-interest. Yeah. Uh, they take a very, very 
mechanistic, pragmatic view of it. Uh, and this informs a lot of their, their structures. And therefore, when you fail in that society, uh, problems may follow. And Chefkator, despite the fact that he predicted many of the things that went wrong, um, is potentially on a hot seat. And I, as I think some of your other questions will probably point to, there are all sorts of people who are happy to have him on that hot seat. Yeah. Well, Seth Cador is, um, he's, Seth Cador is, um, he's a lot more subtle than some of his bosses, to put it one way. He's, he's, <laughs> and he's been undermined. Um, he, he might have been far more successful and more evil if, uh, if he didn't have such, uh, blunt and, and abrasive uh, fellows he has to deal with back home, right? Well, they're they're quite a mix. And one of the things that when you're when we see their exchanges, the exchanges themselves being, by the way, an answer to a mystery um, that's set up from the first book, which is how the heck did they do those sort of you know time space relativistically um, you know defying feats that we saw uh, in the first book, and we start to see some of the answers for that yeah. in the third book. Um, and, uh, and uh, you know, if people thought that there was maybe some magic size stuff involved uh, by the third book, they'll realize no. But there's some interesting questions about biology. Uh, <laughs> and, that, you know, I, I, could, I could spend a lot of time just talking about that. But our, our own tendency to, you know, uh, well, I'll skip forward and simply say, yes, he's got a lot of trouble with people be, uh, at home. There, one of the things that hopefully is showing up in, in the exchanges in the third book is that there is, just in the same way that human, humanity is highly factional, we see that the, the Kator are. We're also getting signs, as a matter of fact, we're getting signs of high degrees of factionalization in almost all the groups, um, with, with, if you think of it one way or the other. Um, the, the Arat Kurv are very divided over what should be done with with Earth. The Chachra were very divided over do we really want to ally with the Arat Kor or aren't the humans more akin to what we understand? I mean, they wage wars. We get that. Um, the Kator seem to be, you know, high in, in, a, in a highly uh, factious sort of uh, family and, and also philosophical sort of war amongst themselves or on the, on the verge of some real sharp um, sharp disagreements. There's all the, the stuff we said about Earth itself. The Dornani, for some reason, the custodians seem to be very different from the rest of their own species. And even in Raising Cain, if one, if one looks carefully, we may see that although the Slasriti certainly are far more unified than almost any of the other groups, two are coming to uh, arguably a sort of um, uh, a, a decision fork, a fork in the road, and uh, they may not all feel comfortable about the direction that they must go. Yeah. Well, just... So, uh, a lot of trouble, a lot of places. Yeah. Let's stick on the Keturah a little bit more, because a great deal of the, the plot revolves around um, some Keturah politics. I wondered um, a bit. <laughs> the, Cain is in trial by fire. Um, Cain has been involved with the elimination of, of like, a whole uh, clan of the Keturah except for some. Um, tell us about Nesda and um, what, what, is she, what is her goal, what she want to do? She's, she's one of the bad guys that we 
encounter in the book. So one of the things that's not exactly set out in detail, and in, even in the third book, and it requires a little bit of reading between the lines at this point, it will become a great deal more overt in the fourth book. It was actually not Cain so much. It, it, basically, Nesda, who is another major Torin character, is from a very different house. Tlarekstrin's Shethkator is from the house Shethkator. Uh, Neza is from House Perikmeris. However, House Perikmeris has been extirpated. And the reason they were extirpated is because it was the judgment of the other families, the house moot, as it is called, that they had essentially engaged in autonomous strategies having to do with trying to undermine Earth that actually accelerated the process of Earth's arrival on the interstellar scene and produced a, a, a bad outcome rather than the desirable outcome. For a, for a whole variety of reasons, the Kator had hoped to bring humanity under its tutelage and fold. Um, this was ruined because one of the things that the, what the Parak Maris did was they created something in the first book which is known as the Doomsday Rock. For anybody who hasn't read the first book, I will not uh, spoil much except to say, well, Earth obviously didn't get wiped out because we're still talking about Earth. However, uh, this was a this was a machinated event, and the rest of the uh, the Katoran um, uh, uh, houses basically feel, you know what, you you cowboyed you you cowboyed this, and guess what, we can't have you cowboying anymore. They essentially got rid of the house. Um, this is where this is what Nesda is from. The entire house has either been uh, uh, euthanized or split up. Uh, this is, by the way, not this is not uncommon amongst the Qatar, which gives you an idea of just how warm and fuzzy a bunch they are. Um, but she is in a situation where she wishes her house to be ascendant again, and she sees in, as you were saying, Chef Cater is given is given responsibility but arguably not enough authority to carry it out correctly. And people ignore his reservations when he is sent to try to, I guess you could say, salvage the situation on Earth. Since he does not do so with complete success, to put it lightly, um, the, the, if you will, the eliminated and scattered members, many of them, of House Park Maris see this as an opportunity. If they can leverage events correctly, they may be able to reascend to power at the expense of, of House Chef Kador. So that's part of what, what's going on there. And she is also, yes, a very, uh, a very, very much, um, an exemplar of her type. Although in her case, we see some, failings that probably make her a little bit more endearing to us. I think endearing is probably an overly optimistic term. Uh, we realize, let's put it this way, we realize that the entire social programming of Katoran society against love, against affection, uh, against a desire to reach out to another individual and have a sort of meaningful relationship that goes beyond sheer pragmatism is not something you stamp out in social mammals uh, quite so effectively and absolutely as, as the Katoran social conditioning would, uh, would hope or presume to do. So in, in that way, she's a, really, she's a really fun character to write. And I would, I would hazard to say maybe... Um, 
you you want to you want to see a kick-ass female character? You come come to my tent. Catch an eyeful of Nesta, and quite frankly, catch an eyeful of another character that I also bring forward in the third book, Pandora Verida. Yeah, she's a cool character. Um, the Nest, I mean, part of the getting her her house back in in uh, in dominance is chasing Kane and the diplomatic party that's going to the Slatherithi and trying to uh, kill them, <laughs> which is. Uh, well, okay, I guess I guess we're going that far, yeah. Well, I mean, this uh, that's yep. that's a great deal of what the book is about. So the and and it's really cool you, the various. Uh, <laughs> so, tell us about this dip. I mean, we need to talk about the diplomatic mission. Um, this Kane uh, is is it, it's put together quickly, and Kane is thrown in with an old friend of his, who's maybe not as really really a friend. The uh, this. Uh, French uh, diplomat who's who, I love his character. He's just so insulting. Uh, can you tell us about him? So Etienne Gaspard is one of the individuals in the first book who ultimately receives Kane's report from what he found when he went to check out the ruins or not ruins on Delta Pavanus Three, which is essentially how the entire series begins. Um, he is very much. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of, a, he's, he's really something that comes out of some of my experience on Fulbright's, um, overseas, mostly, all of them actually being in Europe. Um, there is a, there is a school of French diplomacy that comes out of the Sabon, which is a completely rationalist realpolitik view of the world. It is, it, it is essentially dedicated to the critique of everything, to the, no, to the, uh, to the extent that it's too bad if feelings get hurt. <laughs> um, so it's 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 almost like uh, if if you will it is formalized and enlightened Aspergers uh, is is one way to I suppose look at it um, and uh, and uh, I'm being waggish there so please forgive me but the 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 point is that he he's made to look like a, a very very annoying character he's not unintelligent um, but he is he's definitely somebody who is constantly trying to find places to stick needles, you know, in, in, uh, find weak spots and jab. Um, he's, he's a pretty annoying character in a whole lot of ways. Huge fun to write because he's also a, more than a little bit full of himself. But over the course of the third book, um, I think people will come to have probably a different feeling about him. Yeah, he, um, we come to understand him a lot at, better. Or Kane does, at least. And that's, yeah, and that's that's one of the you know one of the things that I I try to put into to, uh, my fiction is that, um, and it's 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 something that really it, it it's it's very much a piece of the of the movements of 20th century fiction, or at least I'd say one of its their better traits, which is that, um, you know, in 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 a simpler story, we sort of know who a character is when they walk on stage, we know who they are. <laughs> and that's pretty much it. And yet, you know, I'll just ask anybody listening to this to, to think back in your life to those people that you've changed opinions about and how you think they're one person at first, and then you get more context on them. And you learn, oh, my gosh, they probably act that way because of this or because they were covering for that or they had to, you know, they had to change their lives in this way to take care of other people. And we we see the external features we see of other individuals. Sometimes we only understand what they really mean, what 
they signify about the other individual when we come to get to know them a little bit better. And that's something that I really try to build into into my stories because I feel that it there's some part of that which makes that's how real human inter, interactions and relations occur. And to me, having most folks self-evident front, it always strikes me as a little bit comic book. Uh, and I'm not saying that, you know, uh, that, that this is rampant in fiction today, but you do see some of it. And in the case of Gaspard, I, I guess the reason I'm bringing it up is because he's, he's in my mind, he's very much a, a sort of exemplar of, of this, which is when you're, you know, in, when I tell a story, who you might think a character is at first may not be who they really are inside, nor may they stay that way. They may undergo a lot of change. Certainly at the, in the very last pages of Raising Cain, we see some, I think, interesting um, signs about how pressures have impacted one of the major characters in the storyline thus far. Yeah. I won't say any more than that. That was part one of our two-part interview with Charles E. Gannon on Raising Cain, his third entry in the award-winning science fiction series. We'll have part two of the interview next time on the podcast. Now we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky. This portion of Under a Graveyard Sky is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at audible.com now. If you're not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. Now here is another segment of John Ringo's novel of zombie infestation and the heroic humans who fight back, determined to pull the world from disaster and humanity itself from the brink of annihilation. It's all taking place under a graveyard sky. Chapter 13 This place is good, trust me, Tom said. The traffic wasn't that heavy, but the car was still having trouble making its way. More and more double-parked cars were turning up abandoned on the streets. And the street department couldn't get them cleared fast enough. Apparently... People tended not only to strip, but bail out of the cars when they went zombie. At least most did. Some just flipped too fast and ended up crashing. And it's still open. Trust me like, trust me you won't get bitten by a zombie? Faith asked. Not fair, Faith, Sophia said. Sorry, Uncle Tom, Faith said. That wasn't fair, especially after all the crap I got into on my own. She stroked the saiga she was toting and grinned. But this time, I'm fully prepared. I'm a big guy, Tom said, grinning back. And if you use that, you better make damn sure you only hit your primary target. And that you have a valid target. In other words, Steve said, don't use it. Your ID won't hold up under scrutiny. Spoil sports, Faith said. Truth is... I don't want to take a shot. I'm still too woozy, but it's a nice security blanket. I hope you told them that they're hosting contractors, Stacy said. I did, Tom said. There were some issues to work out, but it's all good. They don't want people with guns? Sophia asked. 
She was in body armor and full covering, but had settled for just a pistol and taser. Pistol on the right thigh, taser on the left. The restaurant is popular with a certain crowd, Tom said. The owner was twitchy because he didn't want them getting roiled. We're here, sir, Durante said as the limo pulled up to an unpretentious brownstone building on the Upper East Side. Doesn't look like much, Faith said, opening the door and stepping out. You're supposed to let Durante do that, Sophia said. You're never going to figure out how to make an entrance, are you? Let me clear the way first, Faith, Durante said, holding out his hand. He strode towards the door, checking side to side for threats as the driver stepped out and covered the street side. The good ones rarely do, Tom said. He was wearing just a business suit. Of course, he was also carrying under the suit. Truth is, this place is used to this sort of arrival, just not as openly armed. Oh, Steve said. That sort of crowd. What sort of crowd? Faith asked, looking around. Mr. Smith! The speaker was a short, rotund fellow with a thick Sicilian accent. It is good to see you again. Mr. Fattore, Tom said, nodding. I hope this isn't a bother. Not at all, Mr. Fattore said. We shall feel very secure, yes? Come in, come in. He ushered Tom, Sophia, Steve, and Stacy into the restaurant like royalty. The restaurant was long, but fairly narrow with booths down the right side and tables filling the middle. It was also surprisingly crowded. The conversation muted for a moment when Faith and Durante entered. Then it picked back up. For you and your friends, Mr. Fattori said, gesturing to a booth at the rear. Faith found herself blocked in getting to the booth. Ahem, ahem, Faith said. You're sitting at a table, Fattori said in a whisper. There was an empty table by the booth, which would only take four anyway. He clearly wondered why he had to explain. I'll take the table, Tom said, grinning. This night out was Faith's idea. We can squeeze up, Stacy said. You and Faith on that side. Works, Tom said, then looked at Faith. I don't do inside. I'm the one with all the guns, Faith pointed out. I'm not sure I can slide in. Give me the saga, Faith, Durante said. But what if somebody's zombies, Faith said, clutching it to her chest. I'm really serious. I am not going through that again unarmed. And I'm really serious that it's my job to take care of it, Durante said, holding out his hand. Saiga, then you can fit in the booth. Okay, Faith said, unclipping the semi-automatic, magazine-fed shotgun and handing it over but I'm totally hanging on to the pistols. She had three, one in a fast rig and two on chest rigs. She was also, at Tom's insistence, carrying a dual-fire taser X-26 and spare cartridges. Since all those, in her opinion, might need refueling, she was also carrying more ammo than Durante. You can hang on to the pistols, Tom said. Now slide in. Smells good, Stacy said looking at the menu. It had been printed on paper and clearly was, this is what we could get today. What do you recommend? Anything, Tom said. It's all good. 
I usually get the fruity demar. I'm not sure I trust the seafood in these conditions, Steve said. Supply chain is getting totally screwed up. I think you can trust it, Tom said. He's got pretty good suppliers. I want appetizers, Faith said. And stuff. I don't even know what to order. All I ever get is spaghetti and meatballs. Don't get greedy, Steve said. Let her, Tom said. It's on expense account, and the money's just going to turn to electronic cash. The meatballs are to die for. How long? Stacy asked. Depends on the model you look at, Tom said. If we're going to enjoy a night on the town, better make it tonight, is all I can really say. Don't ask me about tomorrow night. Pretty much it's things will continue limping along and then they'll stop. When the tipping point hits, it will cascade fast. Can we talk about something other than the end of civilization tonight? Sophia said. How about something interesting and peripheral? Tom said. They're quietly evacuating all the major art museums to an undisclosed remote site. Basically, even if things fall apart completely, they'll have saved all the big artworks. Ditto classic manuscripts. That's nice to hear, Stacy said. I'd hate to see Titians burn. What about stuff in private collections? Steve asked. Not sure, Tom said. I guess if they find out and turn them in for protection, I don't see the Museum of Art turning down a Van Gogh. Most of those private collections tend to be associated with big corporations, and most of them have remote jump sites. We've already been doing that for the board and the corporation. I'm not sure if they'll hold. Heck, I don't know if the museum remote site will hold, he shrugged. How's your plan? Faith asked. Solid, Tom said thanks in good part to Sophia. This is on expense report because of what you've been doing. Not Faith, by the way. Well, thanks a lot, Faith said. All I did was stop zombies from taking over your building and nearly die doing it. That too, Tom said. Just twitting you. Richard Bateman said he appreciated both your efforts. Are you ready to order? The waitress asked. I don't know what most of these are, Faith said, looking at the load of appetizers. Tom had basically ordered one of everything on the appetizer menu. This is great, Sophia said. What is it? Squid in ink, Tom said. Oh, gross, Faith said, setting the piece down. Try it, Steve said, just a bite. I'm not six, Faith said, taking a bite. Okay. It is good. I hate the texture, though. Works for me, Sophia said, trying another appetizer. You're right. It's all good. She looked around and leaned over to Stacy. It would be better with some of the wine. Stacy slid her wine glass over and refilled her mostly empty water glass from the bottle. So that's the trick, Faith said. Eat it with wine and everything tastes good? Pretty much, Tom said. You don't want to know some of the stuff I've choked down with alcohol. Monkey, Sophia said, taking a sip. Ooh, it is better with the wine. Try sloth, Steve said, which is, by the way, truly putrid stuff. Tried some on a bet one time. Helped that I was off my face at the time. Then I chundered, but I won the bet. Ate a slug once, 
Tom mused. No beer involved. We'd been in the back of beyond for a bit. Look tasty. When you're that hungry, they are. Ugh, Faith said. Okay, no end of the world talk and no weird foods. It wasn't one of those slimy ground ones, Tom said. Tree slug, colorful, looked a bit like a red and blue mobile banana. Turned out they're slightly poisonous. Was quite ill the rest of the op. No eating red and blue tree slugs, Sophia said, nodding. Got it. Just in case it comes up. Speaking of which, how are you doing for supplies? Tom asked. We resupplied right after we got here, Steve said. Which means the boat is packed, but we should be good for a month or so. Depends on how long we spend in harbor. Not much longer, Tom said. We'll be moving the girls back to the boat after tonight. We're shutting down the project Sophia's been working on. It's as complete as it needs to be. Understood, Stacy said, and I'll be glad to have them back. No offense. It's been an adventure, that's for sure, Tom said. I'd say sorry again, but... What's it you say about adventure, da? Faith asked. Adventure is something that happened to someone else. Preferably a long way away and a long time ago, Steve said. When it happens, it's horror, terror, or tragedy. Someday this will be an adventure, Faith said. Okay, they're right, Faith said, burping as she picked at her tiramisu. The food in New York is incredible. I should have gotten that fruit of the sea thing. I usually don't like seafood, but that was great. And this is really just a neighborhood restaurant, Tom said, but one of the best in the city. Do we have to go right back to the boat? Sophia asked. It's getting dark, Steve said, and there's a curfew. Which is hardly enforced, Tom said. Even with the National Guard, they're too busy rounding up infected. And it's getting dark, Steve noted. Up to the parents, Tom said, shrugging. There's some clubs still open, and I hear there's a more or less continuous concert going on in Washington Square Park. More of a rave, really. Concert? Sophia said, her eyes lighting. In the dark, Steve said, in zombie-infested New York City. I've never been to a concert, Faith said sadly. I mean, that's one of those things you do when you're a teenager. The way things are going, I'll never get a chance. Or go to prom, she sniffed. We are not going to a concert at night in a park in zombie-infested New York, Steve said. And that's final. This band sucks, Faith shouted. Warm-up band, Tom shouted back. They usually do. The good ones don't come on until later. Nobody seemed to care that the band sucked. With enough alcohol and drugs, anything sounded good. And from the litter, it looked like the party had been going on for quite a while. The stage was set up right in front of the arch and was apparently powered by a collection of generators that added their own cacophony to the din. No security? Sophia asked, looking around. There was no sign of police presence, and nobody was apparently in charge. I guess it's us, Tom said, grinning. No, this is a totally illegal gathering under New York City law. 
But it has sprung up so many times, and there are so many other problems, that they're not bothering to enforce it. You're here at your own risk, which I would not suggest if Durante and I weren't here. Got it, Sophia said. The women in the crowd were either in large groups or accompanied by males. Don't drink from an open container, don't accept anything, and for anything else, I've got this, she said, tapping her pistol. This will probably stop any problems in their tracks, Tom said, tapping the large BERT sign Velcro to the front of her Kevlar. He'd also provided contractor badges for the group. The badges on neck lanyards read, Biological Emergency Contract Agent. What? Sophia said, her eyes wide. You mean the rumor that BERT vans are taking people to be made into vaccine? Nobody believes that. Just keep repeating that, Tom said. Despite the implicit warning, Sophia gently drifted to the side of the group, getting a look at the crowd. Most of them were young, her apparent age, or maybe even her real age. The point was that you could never tell, and the whole crowd had a funny edge. They didn't seem to be enjoying themselves as much as trying really, really hard to enjoy themselves. The only ones that didn't have that edge were the ones that, before it was even dark, were already so stoned or drunk they could forget why an illegal concert could go on in the park without being broken up. Hey, the guy said from behind her. It was as close to a whisper as you could use with nuclear-level speakers blaring. Top-quality vaccine. She turned to look, and the guy was holding a vial cupped in his hand. I can get syringes, too. The guy was dressed in a vivid pink rayon shirt, a Yankees jacket, and jeans. He looked like some sort of walking advertisement for bad drug dealers. Clean. Got some, Sophia said. Thanks. Sophia turned fully so he could see the sign on her body armor and neck badge and just gave him a cold, blank stare. Oh, shit, the guy said, his eyes going wide. He turned around and hurried away, occasionally glancing over his shoulder. Wow, that really does work, Sophia said. Hey, a girl said, looking around to make sure nobody could hear. Can you score me some? We don't really make vaccine, Sophia said, sighing. And I don't even work the streets. I'm support staff. What do you do? The girl's male companion asked slowly. He was pretty clearly stoned, but trying to track. Antibody tests, Sophia said, shrugging. Lab work, making sure that our clients aren't infected. We're contracted to a particular corporation. The rest is sort of NDA. That's cool, the guy said. Hey, want some E-bomb? He asked, holding out a handful of pills. You really don't want a person carrying a pistol and a taser fucked up, Sophia said, grinning. No offense. You hear security? The girl asked. Nope, Sophia said. Just enjoying the show, sort of. They really suck. Yeah, the girl said. The good ones don't start showing up until after dark. The girl was Christine. Her boyfriend, he's just a hookup, really, because he's got a source, was Todd. They were both New York natives, as were their friends. The group was huddled for protection against the increasingly rowdy crowd. 
There was a group right down by the stage that had created a mosh pit, which explained the fence set up to protect the bands. After the sun went down, the band changed. It was another NYC local band, but it was better. Not by much, but better. That band changed out for somebody she actually thought she recognized. A tall, saturnine guy carrying an acoustic guitar. Is that Voltaire? Sophia asked. Yeah, Christine said. She'd been hitting a bottle of Chivas Regal from the neck and was thoroughly plastered. He shows up every night. Brains, 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 the crowd chanted. Of course, he started with brains, then all the oldies and goodies. Vampire Club, Demon Slayer, USS Make Shit Up. Sophia knew them all, and she'd always wanted to see him in concert. An underground concert in a park in NYC in the middle of an apocalypse was just perfect. He was in the middle of Day of the Dead when she heard the first shotgun blast. The 1911 is a great gun, Faith shouted, but it's really obsolete technology, and it's only got seven rounds. I prefer the H and K. Try getting servers out of them, Durante shouted back. They were standing side by side with Faith watching the bands and Durante watching the outer darkness. They'd both put in earplugs, even after Voltaire showed up. You could still hear him, and she wasn't a huge Voltaire fan. And the 1911 doesn't have a I-crack-if-you-look-at-me-wrong polymer frame. You can shoot an H&K underwater, Faith said. You can shoot a 1911 underwater, Durante replied. Although I don't know why you'd have to. That's called a straw man argument. Once, maybe, Faith argued. But an H&K has an octagonal barrel. It can handle a much higher load. We're just gonna have to agree to disagree. Durante said, grinning. I wish they had, like, a Treyu or Avenged Sevenfold, Faith said. Sophia must be having a blast, though. They'd all been keeping her under light surveillance. She seems to be, Durante said. She seems more... He paused and shook his head. Boss, company. Cops? Faith asked, looking over her shoulder. No. Coming out of the shadows of the trees, she could see two naked people, male and female, trotting toward the concertgoers. Shit, she said, drawing her taser. Again, let me take it, Durante said, drawing one of his. Fewer questions. The zombies weren't heading directly their way, so Durante trotted to the side to interpose himself between them and the crowd. I'm surprised it's taken this long, Tom said. A Glock had appeared from somewhere. Uh-oh, Faith said, gesturing to the side. More zombies were coming out of the trees. Lots of zombies. And they were moving fast. Uncle Tom? I don't think tasers are gonna do it, Tom said. Durante, multiples, hot rounds. Durante had already tasered the two zombies and injected one. He dropped his injector as he was preparing to inject the second and switched to the Saiga. See, Steve said, I told you this is a bad idea. He had his 1911 in a two-handed grip, and Stacy had his back holding a Sig Sauer. Cell service is out, Tom said. Shit, engage at will. On it, Faith said, drifting right, 
Durante had gone left to engage the first two. Moving right, she was closer to covering Sophia. She and the group with her were apparently completely oblivious to the approaching threat. Faith put her eye to the point-and-shoot scope on the Saiga and targeted the first approaching zombie. This is how you handle a zombie apocalypse, she said, just as Durante fired. That was another segment in our complete audiobook serialization of Under a Graveyard Sky by John Rango. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz and a solar system-sized fog machine that emits a thick anti-plot spoiler miasma that hides all premature, crucial story revelations and provides shade for those continent-sized, intelligent, malevolent, gas-based jellyfish on Jupiter who are determined to invade the Earth and suck up all of our helium so they can talk funny at their children's birthday parties. As well as thanks and kudos to Charles E. Gannon, author of Raising Cain. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. Radio Hour is brought to you by Bain Books Audio Drama, presenting dramatized audio plays of the best science fiction and fantasy with a professional cast and cinema quality soundtracks. Now available, Eric Flint's Islands based on the novella by Eric Flint. Also available, Larry Correa's Detroit Christmas, based on the novella by Larry Correa, set in the world of the Grim Noir Chronicles at BaneEbooks.com. Just put Islands and Detroit Christmas in the search bar and enter a world of listening pleasure. Bane Books Audio Drama. <laughs> <laughs>